After the shining light that was the first Olympopod, a revolutionary leap for global sporting podcastery, we come to the second Olympopod. And if it is anything like the second Olympiad, this episode will rapidly descend into ignominy and confusion and ramble on for five times longer than is strictly necessary. There will be no medals, there will be no schedule of events, and only time will tell if this Olympopod will ever be accepted as canonical by the global podcasting community. Welcome to Paris 1900. In the intro, I mentioned that there's not going to be any medals in this Olympopod. That's because there were no medals in Paris 1900. If they received anything at all, the winners won a cash prize or maybe a piece of art. But as with the last Olympopod, we will be referring to the winners of gold, silver and bronze. This is just a retroactive award by the IOC. The 1900 Games would be barely recognisable to modern day fans of the Olympics. And this was partly because Coubertin was so eager to have the second Olympiad in Paris that he made a bit of a deal which he would come to deeply regret and joined up with the Paris World Fair. As a result, the sporting events were completely sidelined and very few people at the time considered them to be the Olympic Games, and they were rarely, if ever, referred to as such. I really love Bill Mallon's opening words in his book about this Games, which was aptly named the 1900 Olympic Games, as he paraphrased Charles Dickens in it. It was the worst of games and the worst of games. <laughs> I think that pretty much sums it up. <laughs> but how did we get there? How did we get from 1896, which regardless of how internationally known it was, it was by those standards a success. It was a success, yeah. To four years later, having the absolute nonsense and five month long. Five months long five months so how do we get there ruth uh, no, no actually sorry i say that in disbelief five months but actually you know what? i'd love a five-month olympics oh <laughs> uh, would you though like, part of its charm not at 16 day time span yeah i suppose I, I, I suppose i suppose i'm just yeah i suppose i'm just like really suffering from severe withdrawal right now of the olympic games so i probably would take a five month just to get me back into action the idea itself to have the Olympic Games run alongside the World Fair doesn't seem like such a terrible idea. That was, as we mentioned in the first Olympipod, the original idea that the first ones would take place in 1900 alongside this Exposition Universelle. But very quickly things started to go downhill. The IOC began to become less involved and the people tasked with running it within France basically decided to do whatever the hell they wanted. Yeah, and there were a huge number of sports at this that we don't actually know whether they were part of the Olympics, at the IOC, or part of the um, World Fair. For example, uh, ballooning, which is now considered by the IOC as an ex exhibition game because there were only contestants from France and this was the longest game because they had to they had to get into their balloon. And uh, one of the disciplines was who could stay up in the air the longest, which was a couple of which is a couple of months. <laughs> <laughs> As you said, it was so difficult to to know uh, at the time. And of course, there were many athletes who didn't even know they'd competed in the Olympic Games. And we'll talk about a few of them later on. But before we go into other disciplines besides ballooning. I have a little quiz for you, Ruth, if you're game. Oh, God. Now, it's not, it's not going to be a test of your actual knowledge. I'm a limpopod game. Okay. 
then we're going to give you this little test. It's, um, it's pretty simple. It's a quiz of whether it was officially a sport or not a sport. Okay, before... <laughs> officially by whom? Officially by the man whose quote I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, Bill Mallon. Okay. And he gave his judgment, which the IOC, for the most part, I think have pretty much accepted with time. And there are four particular criteria that decided whether or not it was going to be part of the Olympic Games looking back on it or not and those four are whether there were amateurs or pros taking part Mm -hmm. there are a couple of exceptions to this but for the most part only amateurs whether it was an international event so people outside of France whether there was a handicap involved so some kind of advantage given to athletes based on ability and fourth open to anyone right so those four criteria And, well, the one that isn't mentioned here, but we kind of accept with ballooning and all the motorsports is (laughs) if it's got an engine, it doesn't qualify for the Olympics. So that's automatically ruled out. We'll get back to your quiz in a second, but I'm not sure that's necessarily like like you can sit on a horse or go on a bike. Like, I'm not necessarily sure uh, we should rule it out if it has an engine. Well, do well, bike doesn't have an engine. No, I know, but it's got wheels. (laughs) People don't have wheels. No, no, no. An actual, some kind of motorized or other fuel ingested uh, propulsion. Okay, fine, fine. Get to the quiz, get to the quiz. Okay, back to the quiz. So, sport number one, croquet. Well, uh, I mean, I hope it's yes, because it was one of the only two that women were allowed in. Oh, on the spot, now I'm feeling like it's no. I'm going to go with yes, because I'm wishing it was. It's no. And the reason why it was excluded from Bill Mallon's idea of an Olympic sport is because it was not international. Now, for a long time, people believed that it was international because there was one competitor, Marcel Haintiens, who was listed as Belgian, but he was actually French. So for a while, they thought it was someone international, but it was not. So the beautifully put together croquet event, which apparently looked very nice, uh, but only had one paying spectator, was not an Olympic sport, according to Malin. How gushed, how gushed would you feel if you went into a stadium and discovered you were the only person who'd paid? Well, this guy who came, he came up from, he was an Englishman who came up from Nice. Apparently he was a big, big fan of the sport. So maybe he was happy to to support it. Sport number two, the male coach equestrian event. I hope it wasn't, but it sounds like it could have been. Yes. Bingo. Yes, it was. Yay! <laughs> male coach equestrian <laughs> event. Technically... Uh, checked all the boxes and was but actually that's okay because um there were quite a number of chariot events at the ancient olympics so we could kind of say it was a carry-on from that so grand glad it's not an event now but i'll give it to them live pigeon shooting so it's very famous as having taken place at the 1900 games but i wonder did anyone travel over to paris to shoot pigeons but then again as we know from the last olympopod there were lots of americans with guns in paris who could just drop all their work and go to olympics i think it's going to be wrong but i'm going to say yes no because where are all the americans with guns it was not the international aspect which ruled it out this time they were professionals and i think they were professional pigeon shooters i think it was a belgian who won it But I didn't look too much into it because it did not qualify. So, no. One out of three so far. Sport number four. Pelota Basque. I mean, no. But 
you're asking me. So I, I don't know. I don't know anything anymore. I, <laughs> I don't know what's real. Maybe the Olympics is just cake. I don't know. No, no, Chris. <laughs> yes. Oh. So the re- <laughs> now this is the stupidest one of all. There were three events. One of them qualifies as Olympics. And the only one that did was the amateur event, which had two teams entered, one from Spain and one from France, and it didn't even take place. <laughs> the French team withdrew and the Spaniards were the champions without playing. So the one game of Basque which was in the Olympics didn't actually take place. <laughs> I, th- I think you're going to have to explain what that sport is as well. Oh, okay. Basketballada is like squash. It's, a, it's, it's like squash, but you've got a curved thing oh, attached to your yeah. arm and you fling the ball. So it's Ooh. like, it's a kind of squash wall handball uh, sport. Well, that sounds exciting. Which is very popular, very popular in the Basque region. As uh, as the name suggests, yes, it did qualify under Bill Mallon's rules, but didn't actually take place, although the Spaniards did win it. So there you go. Cricket. Yeah, well, okay. So yes, I want to talk about cricket for a second, because last week you called me an above average international non-athlete, entirely overlooking my zero caps and two training sessions with the under 15 Irish girls cricket team. So I just want I just want to put that there now on the records. <laughs> but yes, as it happened in 1900, it was the only time cricket has appeared at the Olympic Games. There were two teams, Britain and France. However, on closer inspection, the French team does seem to have been almost entirely made up of British embassy workers and a smattering of other expats. No official, no official from the uh, the Paris exhibition actually took any record of this match. The only reason we have a record is because one of the British team, John Sims, did keep a score. Uh, it took place over two days with two innings each and the British team absolutely dominated a one by 158 runs. They bowled out the French in the second innings with just 26 runs. But had the French managed to stick in it for five minutes more to the innings end, the match would have been declared a draw. And then, yeah, who knows? It probably would have descended into some sort of 2019 Cricket World Cup scenario with Britain still winning. Ah, yes, the the golden over or whatever it was called. Yes. For New Zealand. Yes, I guess that means it was a sport in the Olympics, right? Officially. It was. was. Yes, bingo. Well done. So finishing strongly there, Ruth. Yeah. Well, I, I wonder. I imagine some of those British team were professionals. Uh, you'd have to ask the the people from the Devon and Somerset Wanderers. I think they were just a bunch of guys who liked to travel around and play cricket. I think they were they had a, a tour of the Isle of Wight. I think before they arrived in Paris, so they just like traveling around playing cricket. Did they know they were in the Olympics? Who knows? Probably not. If the only record of it is uh, John Sims and his handwritten scorecards so i think that i think these opening 10 minutes of the podcast have really shown just what an absolute disaster the paris olympics so to speak were and some of the other sports uh which we can go through now uh, in quick detail so we had like baseball there was only one match in football there were three teams amateur teams that just happened to come over so like there was a team from england called upton park then there was a french team and a bunch of belgian university students who played 
and the English won that. In the rugby, there were three teams as well. The British team that came over, Mosley Wanderers, they arrived, played the game and then left on the very same day without knowing at the time they were in the Olympics. And actually, there we had our very first black gold medalist as the Franco-Haitian player Constantine Henriquez was part of the French team who played both matches, beating the British once, beating the Germans once, and the British and the Germans didn't play each other and just got silver split between them, according to the IOC. So, uh, yeah, it was a bit of a mess, the team sports, but it was all an awful mess. We also had tug of war for the first time in the 1900 Summer Olympics, which as listeners to the last epipod will remember that I have put into our Olympics. We took out uh, golf, as I recall, and we now have tug of war. Correct. What about the competition? <laughs> <laughs> there were two There were two teams. Uh, the, there was the French team, obviously, and then there was a Danish-Swedish mixed team uh, with the Danes and the Swedes winning gold. There was some kind of reports that there was another tug-of-war competition with other nations, but it seems to be just like a bunch of nonsense, like supposedly an American team, uh, supposedly a Norwegian team, even though the Norwegians didn't have enough people at the Olympics to have a team, uh, which kind of harks back to my counter-suggestion for what the tug-of-war should look like, but I won't mention any more on that topic. Sorry, tug-of-war people. But what about that? Did did you read anything about that? Was it just pure nonsense? read absolutely nothing on it. I just wanted to remind everybody that we're having tug-of-war in our um, new Olympics. Okay. So as far as we're (laughs) concerned, there was only one event and two teams competed in it. Best of three. Okay. The amount of competitors in this Olympic Games is also very contentious. We could have had somewhere between 1,200 and 13,000 athletes. And you can thank shooting and archery for that, because in shooting and archery, apparently all of France (laughs) uh, appeared to take part, having about 5,000 athletes each. But I think if we're sticking to Bill Mallon's what is a sport, what is not a sport, you've got around 1,300 competitors. And for the very first time, we had women competing, as you alluded to before. And somewhere it says 11 females over all of the sports. I've counted 22, so 10 in golf, 6 in tennis, 3 in croquet, which, as we've discovered, is not official. But when it comes to uh, talking about the women, we'll include them. 2 in equestrian and 1 in sailing. Did she win? Sailing. Did she win? Yeah, did she win in the one-person women's sailing event? Or was she in a mixed field? Helene de Portelet was the very first women's Olympic champion in sailing. She was part of a three-person crew. And I think she was in it with her uh, husband and one other de Portelet. But she was originally, she came from the United States. And she is the first women's champion, not in a women's event, in an open event in the sailing. So yes, the answer to both of your questions is yes. (laughs) 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 So she's our very first woman to win a medal. The very first women's champion of a women's event goes to the tennis player, Charlotte Cooper, who is a very interesting character as well. Do you know anything about her? I know absolutely nothing about her. Okay, well, let me uh, fill your mind. 
Charlotte Cooper, a multiple Wimbledon champion as well. So she really was at the top of her game at the time. She wasn't just a John Boland who rocked up and uh, happened to win the tennis championship, I think by Paris 1900, even though the whole Olympics was a mess, the tennis event was much higher in quality. So she was very rare as she was the only one in the women's competition to serve overhead which, as we both know, would be a massive, massive advantage when it comes <laughs> to playing tennis if you can actually serve overhead. Apparently, she was a very good volleyer as well, which I imagine was very, very difficult in the clothing choices of the time for women, even while playing sports. So she was quite, quite an athlete. And yeah, she only kept two rackets, an old one for when it was wet weather and a good one for her matches. And she won Wimbledon five times, but it never got to her head because she would always cycle to and from the Wimbledon stadiums. Was it a stadium in 1900? Who knows? To the Wimbledon Park to play. And not only did she win the singles, she also won the mixed doubles with Reginald Doherty. And here's an interesting one with Reginald Doherty. He won the doubles and the mixed doubles. In the doubles, he won it with his brother Lawrence. Lawrence also won the singles in men's tennis. Both brothers were supposed to face off against each other in the semi-final of the competition, but they decided they would not. They would not do uh, Serena and Venus Williams. They would not compete against each other, at least not in this one, because they believed that this competition was not important enough. So so Reginald Doherty refused to face his brother Lawrence in the single semi-final. Lawrence went on to win the gold in that. They won the gold together in the doubles and then Reginald got his second gold medal alongside Charlotte Cooper in the mixed doubles. Chris, tell me a little bit about the athletics, the track and the field, because this was a very, again, yet further proof of the absolute disarray of the 1900 Paris Games. I don't think we can call it track and field because there wasn't <laughs> okay, a track. Field. <laughs> the running and throwing on a field with trees, 1900 Paris Olympics. Now, it was an absolute mess. They had it at Racing Club de France and there was no track. So they ran on the grass and the grass itself had a number of dips and mounds in it. That caused a bit of controversy. Uh, it was 500 meters long through a bunch of trees as well. And... My favorite part of this was that discus throwers kept having their attempts land in the trees. And that is why our good friend from the previous pod, Robert Garrett, didn't even record a mark in the discus because he kept getting his throws stuck in the trees. Though he did manage two bronzes, one in the shot put and one in the standing triple jump. So... The track and field, when it comes to the track itself, an absolute disaster. I read somewhere that also the jumpers had to dig their own pits because they arrived and there were no sand pits for them to jump into. Absolutely. And that <laughs> there's so many things wrong with this that I didn't even put that on my notes. <laughs> that's how that's how low that's how low down uh, the shit storm that was. The digging pits, that was nothing in comparison to throwing discus <laughs> in the trees or In the case of Arthur Duffy, who was arguably the best sprinter of his generation, it cost him a gold medal in the 100 meter sprint as he either tripped on one of the mounds or he pulled a muscle. I think he claimed that he pulled a muscle, but it seemed that he probably fell over 
and pulling a muscle was a bit less of an embarrassing thing to tell people. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I, I really, I really not sure I'm in a place to judge. <laughs> but there were some heroes on the track and field as well. These included Ray Yuri, who was an American track and field specialist who made his first appearance at the 1900 Paris Games. He went on to compete in the 1904 and the 1908 Games, winning eight events in total, plus two more at the Intercalated Games in 1906. He was the Olympics' most successful Olympian for a total of 100 years and 23 days, before his compatriot Michael Phelps matched his record in Beijing on the 15th of August 2008. And of course, Phelps then overtook his record the very next day when he won his ninth Olympic gold. What's particularly fascinating about Yuri is his childhood. He was orphaned at the age of five, and then he contracted polio soon time after, which left him paralysed, and he spent much of his early childhood in a wheelchair. Um, it was very much considered by a lot of people that he would never walk again. He refused to accept this, though, and he began doing his own exercises to gradually build back the muscles in his legs. Once he could walk, he began introducing jumping exercises. Um, but by the time he was 17, he was admitted into Purdue University, where he played football and captained the track and field team. All eight of his Olympic medals are in track and field disciplines, which are no longer contested. These were the standing high jump, standing long jump, and standing triple jump. As the name suggests, and I highly recommend you try and find some YouTube videos of these, these were very similar to the high jump, long jump, and triple jump that most people would be familiar with today. But boring. Except there was no run-up. <laughs> I don't think so. I think it's brilliant. Uh, there was no run-up. The starting position is standing position with feet together. Uh, they ceased to be featured in the Olympic track and field schedule after 1912. Uh, they still featured in some national competitions in Nordic countries up to the 1980s. But its popularity elsewhere rapidly declined in the early 20th century, maybe because Chris told people that they were boring. I don't think they were. I think they look cool. Uh, but this, what this means, though, because it did become quite unpopular, is that many of Yuri's records still stand, including his record for the standing long jump at 3.48 metres. And uh, I think he's a very, I don't know, what do you think? But I think he's a very early contender for the title of greatest ever Olympian. After such a compelling story and such a tough upbringing and everything he went through, his rise to becoming an amazing Olympian makes it difficult for me to say this, but there's a reason why these sports don't exist anymore. <laughs> why? <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Like I say, this is someone who couldn't jump very far regardless, but I just think it's very impressive to go from a standing position and jump ridiculously high than like go for a run. And again, as I said, you know, I probably can high jump maybe about 50 centimetres, but even still, I just think it's more impressive from standing still. Maybe not as a spectator. Maybe, I don't know. I just think it's... It is incredibly impressive. And I think there's a, it's a good reason why when you're measuring athletes' baseline abilities, they're in a standing position when they're jumping high and jumping far, because that is a true measurement. So in that sense, yes, these achievements are very good. And you're taking out some of the other aspects of the sport, which when it comes to all the jumping events requires a lot of speed as well, and a lot of techniques. So in terms of pure ability, it's incredibly impressive. But when you have a choice between 
running and jumping or just jumping standing there is a reason why these sports no longer exist there's a reason why standing football never caught on because it's only <laughs> it's only for pensioners right <laughs> it's, i i i i can't wait to absolutely spite you in like seven or eight olympopods and take out the triple jump with the standing triple jump <laughs> <laughs> you may do that, but nobody will agree with you. So, <laughs> so, okay. Well, okay, maybe maybe some people. I mean, yes, it was it was 120 years ago. Maybe they just needed events. It's incredibly impressive baseline ability, yes. And I'm sure he would have been a decent athlete, regardless of the sport. His ability is clear to see. If he was a multi-sport athlete in college, and he is one of the best Olympians of all time. But yes, I would not watch too much standing high jump. Yeah, you're not impressed. You're not impressed. (sighs) Relatively, yes. Just. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Shall we go into Sundays at the Olympic Games in Paris? Because that was incredibly controversial and caused a lot of heartache, a bit of fisticuffs as well. All of the track and field finals were scheduled for a Sunday and that was a particularly big problem for the majority of American athletes who as we know from the last Olympics and also this Olympics were fairly dominant. Uh, The Americans for the most part could not compete because they went to uh, Methodist Christian colleges. They were representing them at these games and Sunday is the Christian Sabbath. So caused quite a bit of a problem and it also seemed that the organizers didn't make it any easier for them because they changed their mind a few times so the athletes could include their qualification marks when it came to the field events so jumping and throwing and uh, they were originally supposed to be moved but the organizers just well changed their mind and uh, this was particularly damaging in a couple of events i know there's one you want to get onto but i'll talk about the pole vault first so it was particularly damaging in the pole vault i believe because well, first of all, it was heavily protested by the US team because of the Sunday rule. And three of the top American vaulters, not only top American vaulters, but top vaulters in the world, had originally been told that they could do their vaults on the following day, and those results would count. However, on Saturday night, the French organizers changed their mind and decided <laughs> decided that the results on Sunday would actually be the final results. The American vaulters didn't even know about this decision until after the event. There were two Americans who did compete, but they were not actual vaulters. They just happened to be in the area. Irving Baxter, who had just finished winning the high jump when the pole vault began, he decided to join the competition and he ended up winning it. So (laughs) the Americans claimed that they were told that no field event would be complete on Sunday until they had a chance to compete the following day. As I said, the French changed their mind. The USA's... As was their right. As was not their right. (laughs) The USA's three actual pole vaulters, Charles Dvorak, Dan Horton, and Baskern Johnson, were not there, and they decided the French to give them an event on Monday after all. And in that event on Monday, Johnson cleared 3 meters 38, which was 8 centimeters higher than the winner Irvin Baxter had done, but it actually made no difference. The French organized this event for them, but it was just to shut them up for a day and it actually made no difference to the result. 
the Americans kept complaining and another special event was organized later that week in which (laughs) the other uh, two actual pole vaulters, uh, Dan Horton, he managed to clear three meters 45, so a big improvement there. And Charles Dvorak managed to get over 335. So again, they would have been in the medals, so to speak, if they were counted. But the French decided still not to change anything. Imagine if like uh, 2024 goes down like that. <laughs> if they just... Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> <laughs> well, we've, we've got another Olympics in Paris just to come really, first. <laughs> exactly, yeah. yeah. Just really, really, like really just uh, going back to their roots, just as saying, yeah, you know, so we're just going to go by 1900 rules. <laughs> Much to the relief of the Norwegians as they look back in history, because the guy who got the bronze medal or finished third, Carl Andersen from Norway, he held on to his position thanks to these unofficial events. If they, if they were counted, he would have been nowhere in the end. But despite all this, the US were still pretty dominant in the track and field or the grass and grass. They won more than four times as many medals as the rest of the nations, including 16 of the 23 gold medals. And that brings me on to you, Ruth. Yeah, this uh, agreement not to compete on the Sunday, it was more of a gentleman's agreement than an actual team rule. Meyer Princeton, one of the team's Jewish contingents, um, although it wasn't part of his religious tradition, agreed not to compete in solidarity with the rest of his team. He would have been the favourite to take the title in the men's long jump after he had topped the qualifying round. His compatriot, Alvin Kreinslein, another Jewish member of Team USA, had come second in those qualifiers. Prinstein and Kreinslein had been major rivals in the two years leading up to the 1900 Games, constantly alternating titles at national events. But it seems because of this unofficial Sunday ban, there wasn't going to be a repeat of this battle. And that is actually true, because Prinstein did not compete that Sunday. However, Kreinslein did, and in fact just beat Prinstein's qualifying distance. Prinstein was absolutely furious. He believed he'd been tricked and betrayed. He demanded a jump off on the Monday, and when he was refused, he promptly punched Kreinslein in the face. Yeah! As some consolation, the Paris judges did award Prinstein with second place, even though he didn't compete on that finals day. As you said, sometimes the qualifying distances were included. So that's how he managed to get second place. He did go on to take the triple jump title. And in 1904, he retained this and took the long jump gold. But it very much seems that whatever rivalry there had been before, it, you know, it escalated. It escalated to blind hatred. And there are accounts of Prinstein essentially going to his grave with this grudge. Um, <laughs> well, too right. Krenzlein is an arsehole. No. So, so that's what well, that's like when we were preparing for this epipod, you actually gave him the epitaph scumbag of the week. I did. But he was actually at the time very much considered by many, obviously not Prinstein, as the country's hero of the games. Also took gold in the 110 and 200 metre hurdles and is credited as pioneering straight-legged hurdling, which gave him an incredible advantage against his opponents. Also the 60 metre sprint. He was a four-time gold medalist. Still scumbag of the week. I mean, it's just an absolute, absolute sneaky move, first of all, from the French to do that. He's a winner, Chris. He's a winner. Yeah, Alvin Krenzlein is just an arse. I mean, he may be... 
He may be a hero in some people's eyes. He did what he needed to do to win. He deserved the punch in the face. <laughs> and he took it. He took the punch in the face, okay? Yeah. Nice little, little extra fact. Norman Pritchard, who is a, of British ethnicity, but who was born in India and represented India at the 1900 Games, came second in that event. And also he took silver at the 200 metres. And he was the first ever representative of an Asian nation. And the first to take a medal. Mm. Now, in that case, was he considered an Indian participant at the time? He represented, yes, at the time. No, he represented India at the time. Okay, because that's that's something that's popping up a lot in my research here. You know, countries claiming uh, athletes participated or won medals, i.e. Chile. Uh, from 1896, uh, <laughs> which I think we are... There's a documentary with forensic pathology. Yeah, get that maybe the guy was there. That was so last podcast, Ruth. Get over it. <laughs> <laughs> there was another case of this in the marathon. Okay. Where Michel Theatro won the gold. And that was uh, as pretty much all of the marathons were. And we'll speak a lot more about the marathon in the next pod. So we, oh, won't, we won't dwell on 1900, but... It was on an incredibly hot day and uh, running through the streets of Paris, not perfect conditions. But for Michel Theatro, he was, I think, a newspaper man. So he knew the streets perfectly. And a lot of people believe that he cheated because he knew some shortcuts around Paris, which were not proven in the end. So he was the confirmed winner. winner. He was the confirmed winner. And the problem here or the controversy here is that he was actually from Luxembourg. He was not French. And so this should have been Luxembourg's first gold medal. Some people do attribute it to Luxembourg. The IOC, I believe, still do not. Luxembourg's Olympic Council did apply uh, for it to be changed, but the IOC rejected it at one point because this guy, Michel Theatro, was born in Luxembourg. He only had Luxembourg citizenship. He may have lived in Paris, but he was not French. So Luxembourg actually won the second Olympic marathon, which is pretty impressive considering they've won very few medals overall. And my favorite name of this Olympics is the man who finished seventh in the marathon, a Canadian by the name of Ronald McDonald. Ah, should have laid off the burgers, maybe he could have come here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't there also somebody who was leading that marathon for quite some time, but then took a wrong turn for like three miles? Yes, that is correct. So, although we had Michelle Theatro. From Luxembourg slash France win gold. Emile Champion was not the champion. He was second place uh, representing France. And then Ernst Fast from Sweden was the bronze medalist. But he was in the lead for quite a long time. And then he turned the wrong way. Which we're going to find out in the 1904 uh, marathon. Like this was just quite a common occurrence. (laughs) People just going the wrong way. Yeah, he just he just went the wrong way with only with like a kilometer to go or something, right? He was quite close. I think he was quite close to winning. So third place for Ernst Fast. That that sounds a little bit dodgy. So that like the French uh, spectators, although not not as we've said, not many people actually knew that the Olympics were going on. So maybe there weren't that many spectators. But um, quite possibly somebody directed in the wrong direction. I wouldn't have put it past it. Oh God, yeah. I do want to just very briefly give an honourable mention to the swimming at the Summer Olympics. 
And like with Athens in 1896, they didn't actually have um, a stadium for the events. They took place uh, in the Seine. But they also took place with the current. So some of the times were incredibly quick. It was also incredibly dirty and oh. lots of people objected. Oh. Uh, but there was also one event which I quite like the sound of, which was the men's 200 meter obstacle event. Yes. So there were three obstacles along the course. Uh, they had to climb over a pole, climb over a row of boats, and then swim under another row of boats. <laughs> It's so silly. <laughs> I think that'd be, I think that'd be uh, really enjoyable to watch. It's like it's like these it's like the uh, steeplechase. It's like it's so ridiculous that you know it'd be brilliant. I've changed my mind very quickly. You know where this would fit perfectly into where? the modern pentathlon. Yes. Instead of actual swimming, oh, have oh. obstacle course swimming Absolutely. as part of the modern pentathlon. Absolutely. Yes. Okay, we need to keep that in our arsenal when we're starting to change stuff around. I'm pretty sure you're you're famous enough on Twitter, Ruth, to get in touch with Arthur Lanigan O'Keefe. Maybe you can ask him, the, the world-class modern pentathlete. Maybe he uh, would fancy it. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll reach out to him and ask him. Um, we might even try and get him on the pods. Maybe. Yeah. Oh, big call there on episode two <laughs> with our... And at the time of recording, before we've released any podcasts, we've currently got nine Twitter followers... So, uh, yeah, big, big call there, but I like it. Yeah, only two of those, well, two and a half of those are, are us. So we've got fans, Chris. We do. And the obstacle, uh, the swimming obstacle course isn't even the most ridiculous sounding event. I mean, we've gone through some of them so far, but I think it's it's just worth flying through a bunch of the names of competitions. Some of them are not silly sports, but just don't seem Olympic at all. I mean, Bulls is in there. Cannon shooting, firefighting. Cannon shooting. Kite flying. There's a, a definitely, I think we're coming from a very Eurocentric uh, point of view, but I think there's definitely an argument for kite flying. Life-saving is in there. Motor racing, yeah. as we said, motor anything with a motor doesn't count. Motorcycle racing. Pigeon racing. So we had p- live pigeon shooting mm-hmm. and pigeon racing, hopefully not at the same time. Although that would, make, that would be an excellent obstacle. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> then there was some other water motorsports and also long pom do you know what that is long pom is outdoor jeu de pom <laughs> which probably doesn't oh, help that, anyway that, that makes it so much clearer Chris. <laughs> uh, which translates to game of the palm originally uh, jeu de pom was a similar sport to like when you slap the ball off the wall american slash irish handball but it developed to having rackets in the end, so which also proves the thing I often say about wall handball is that it is just poverty squash. So jeu de pomme and long pomme were racket sports where you basically tried to gain ground. It was a team. It was like team tennis almost. And I think okay. jeu de pomme then eventually turned into real tennis, which is not the tennis that we know. That is lawn tennis. Real tennis is a kind of a fancy indoor sport, but long pomme was basically a bunch of people hitting a ball with a racket and trying to gain ground on each other and win some points that way. Sounds horrendous, but it was fairly popular. There were seven teams competing, all French, and Paris won. But because they were all French, it doesn't count in the actual Olympic Games. But yeah, there was such a variety of sports, which is really beautiful in one way. Angling was also in there, but in another way, just madness. 
there was there was a very serious campaign to have angling as a spectator sport. Oh god, twenty twenty, I think. Oh, no, thank you. Another quick thing then is about rowing because a lot of the international teams, when they arrived in Paris, they discovered that the French teams all used children as their coxswains, uh, which gave them a huge weight advantage. So they promptly went and just recruited uh, children wherever they could find them, which meant that uh, there was probably a couple of seven-year-old uh, medalists at the event. There was a Dutch team that got a seven-year-old child, people believe, and that is the youngest Olympic champion of all time. But nobody knows his name. There was a picture of him. Nobody, nobody knows his name. Just a child. Well, it's, not as if, it's not as if they got medals, as we've already mentioned. So, yeah. And people people didn't really record any of this because, as we've mentioned, nobody really cared in 1900. Nobody really cared. Nobody really knew. And a perfect example of somebody not even knowing that they were in the Olympics who won the Olympics. Ooh. And I'm going to celebrate this person because it's another female champion. It's the very first women's golf champion. Okay. Margaret Abbott from Chicago. She shot a 47 in a nine-hole event so while the men played two full rounds of golf the women played one half round but they might have fainted in fairness yes yeah the well the tight clothing you know and she became the first ever uh, american female to win a gold medal at the olympics and one of the first overall and she got a gilded porcelain bowl as her prize lovely yeah second overall woman to from america to get a medal and her mother Mary Abbott also competed in the event. So they were the very first mother and daughter to compete at the same Olympic event at the same time. Her mother, Mary, finished in seventh place, shooting a 65. And here's the kicker. Margaret never even knew that they were competing in the Olympics. She just thought it was a normal golf tournament. And she died without knowing that she had made this history. And her victory wasn't even known until... A University of Florida professor, Paula Welsh, began to do some research into the history of the Olympics. I think this was in the 1950s and discovered that Margaret Abbott had been the champion. And then she spent the next 10 years contacting all of Abbott's children and informing them of their mother's victory. So at least the children knew what she had achieved. But how sad is that? This woman and her mother, who had made so much history together in the Olympics, didn't even know that they had competed in the Olympics. Ruth. Yes? You did this to me in the last episode, so now that I've gone through the women's champions, in which event do you think you would have won or at least had a good chance of picking up a porcelain bowl in in 1900? Men's and women's competitions. Yeah, I was going to ask, can I, be, can I be like transported magically with testicles? Yeah, because like... I, yes. Yeah. Look, Chris, I would go in with a huge amount of belief. It may not materialize once there. I'm not, like, I'm, I'm big enough to admit I would not do well in tennis. Golf, I did quite well in Wii Golf. I don't know if that would stand testament. I'm, do you know, I'm not great at pushing. I don't have the patience for it. Uh, <laughs> in in, in, in uh, the jungle pitch and push near my house, I... I I do regularly get beaten by my seven-year-old niece. So, like, I I feel like croquet is going to be a lot more skill than I'm actually expecting. But I I would definitely definitely go into that event 
quite confident. I may not exit that event quite confident, but I would go into that event. Where I have the biggest chance, I think, is probably, given my abilities, in the balloon. So, I mean, that just seems to be a lot of luck. (laughs) Whether or not we get the wind, how far we're going to blow off course. So I think, like, yeah, there would be two other people in there in case, like, I got a bit nervous which i would it'd be very high chris mm. those balloons went up pretty high but yeah i think um my best chance at a medal in the balloon i think both of your mentions are quite good there okay particularly with the with the croquet i mean first of all if you had gone back in time and you're going back in time with the knowledge and the intention to compete in croquet you will have had the practice like you're you're going in trained for it yeah. knowing the, having the benefit of 120 years of technique behind you. Yeah, I, to be honest, Chris, to be honest, Chris, I think I would have a better chance never having played croquet because then I would have <laughs> known the failure. So I think I better to Fair. go in without knowing and just go and absolutely slam the balls. Also, like, it, they do have balls in croquet, don't they? Yeah, they do, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> like, how, how many contestants, like, were there? Because, like, I feel like there were quite a few events I could have just meddled in on the virtue of being one of three. I could have got into the men's tug of war and I would have got uh, bronze. Yes. So yeah, maybe. Yeah, so I love tug of war. I'm going into the tug of war and I'm going to get bronze. I'm going to lose every single fixture because I'm going to be one person against eight men. Um, but yeah, I'm going to go into that and I'm going to take the bronze. Yeah. Boom. Decided. They won't, they won't know that you're actually angling for the bronze because they don't even know it's such a thing that third place exactly. will get it so yeah exactly. fair enough and in the in the croquet if you had been there if you if you uh, had competed you would have made it an international event and it would officially be olympic i'll go into a couple of events i'll go into both of them okay and uh, to answer your question about men and women it was mixed the croquet so there were three women in croquet and the first of them to compete were actually the first Women overall to compete were in the croquet event, uh, Jean Philo Brohi and Marie Onier and Madame Desprez. That's all she was known as. Madame, Madame Desprez beat both of those women, finishing fifth place in both the one ball singles and fifth place in the two ball singles. So, yeah, you would have had to compete with some men. But maybe if you were there, there'd be enough women. There'd be enough women to have a women's competition. So uh, you would have had a chance. And I'd be mentioned in the Wikipedia page, which is, you know, probably important. But no, I, I think I'm going to go, now that I've had some time to think about it, going to go into the tug of war, take an honourable bronze, retrospectively. Nice. Okay, so then, Chris, let's move on to you. Last week, I removed golf from the current Olympic schedule, and I replaced it with the events that I would have got a bronze medal in the 1900 Olympics, tug of war. Are you replacing anything this epipod? I sure am. <gasps> but what? But what? Am I going to replace? I am still undecided between two events. Okay. Talk us through it. Climbing is one of them. Climbing is one of them. And the reason why I'm thinking about climbing is that they made a decision to combine the three disciplines lead climbing, bouldering, and speed climbing, uh, with only one set of medals per gender. And that has caused widespread criticism throughout the passionate climbing world because, as one of them, Lynn Hill, said, that decision to include speed climbing was like asking a middle-distance runner to compete in the sprint. And another one, Adam Ondra, 
said that uh, anything would be better than this combination. So from the actual climbers, and similar to your 10,000 meter reasoning, which is not even the 10,000 meter runners want to run it, not even the climbers want to climb. But as I'm sure you feel, it only just got brought into the Olympics. So I'm going to give it a chance. Okay, okay. Maybe this bastardized version of climbing will turn out to be a great thing. So I'm going to leave climbing in now. Yeah, and also maybe another Olympopod, we will replace that climbing with a better climbing maybe. Um, event. Maybe. So. If we get a climber and who knows. What I'm going to take out is a sport which has been in the Olympics since the ancient times. It wasn't in the first Olympics, but the reason I'm taking it out is because I've got a better sport which includes it in it it is wrestling as a whole i'm taking out wrestling all of it all of wrestling wow big call on the second olympopod because what i'm bringing in requires a lot of athletes it's kabaddi oh kabaddi 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 so kabaddi is a brilliant sport which requires speed teamwork wrestling it has point scoring and it has a stronghold in asia which we really need more of. I mean, there are a few sports, but we need Kabaddi to go worldwide and we need it in the Olympics now. Yeah. I just had to Google it and then I saw it and now I remember what it is and you're 100% correct. There's no argument here. I'm not even going to do what you did last week and start messing around with the rules. 100% <laughs> has my support. Wrestling, I'm sorry. You're gone. We've got Kabaddi in it. Kabaddi has wrestling in it. It has tag chase in it. It's got point scoring. It's, it's so exciting. It's oh, it's so cool, and we really need more of it in the world. And I think um, if more people were exposed to it in countries that don't traditionally play it, like it, it actually doesn't require that many. Um, like I mean, obviously there is a very particular course that they play on, but mm. at any school hall anywhere in the world you could play it in. I think it'd be very good for the sports, and I think it'd be very good for uh, sports participation around the world. So 100%. You have made a good decision, Chris. Ah, finally. <laughs> this, it, it, it's such a good decision. I'm like totally willing to do a third Olympopod. You were, you were on, you were on <laughs> <Yes>. probation. <laughs> you were on probation, but now <laughs> that's fine. Okay, I think that's a let's finish on a high. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, I mean... If we were really to keep the 1900 spirit, we would probably just talk for a little bit longer, mainly about stuff that wasn't relevant, and uh, just go on for maybe five or six hours. But we won't do that to the listeners who are only just coming to love us and our podcast. But we do have another disaster to look forward to. Oh, yes, we do. <laughs> Which is the 1904 Olympics. I'll definitely be tuning into that epipod. <laughs> 